Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're continuing a series in the Gospel of Mark, and last week I mentioned uh, that the first half of the Gospel of Mark had more to do with the identity of Jesus, who, who Jesus is, and the second half has more to do with what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, right? And some of that has, to, a lot of that has to do with, I should say, a lot of that has to do with, are you living out the story of a follower of Christ? Uh, everyone's living a narrative, everyone's living a story, and the question for the, for the follower of Jesus is, are you living this narrative, the story of a, a, a disciple of Christ? Now what's interesting about this passage is that ironically, the people uh, who misunderstand that story and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus are the disciples of Jesus. And, and that's the way Mark leads us to the, the main conflict. The, the story opens with the disciples rebuking those who are bringing the children to Jesus, right? And then in, in the verse that immediately follows, it says, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. And, and that word indignant means he was furious. He was irate. Um, the last time the word rebuke came up um, was in Mark chapter 9, verse 25, when Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and commanded it to come out. That's the attitude uh, that Jesus took with the disciples and their actions here. He rebuked them back. He was indignant. So that's, this, is pretty, this is a pretty dramatic, intense scene. Okay? Now, what does that mean for us? It means, for those of us who are Christians, we've got to be careful. right? Uh, if the 12 disciples can get discipleship wrong, if they can be so off, uh, so can we, right? So how can we get it right? We must get this right. And, and, and how do we even know that we've gotten it right? So Mark is raising all these super important questions for us. Do you understand what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Or, or, or be, to be a Christian? Are you sure you got it right? Uh, and, and how would you know whether you got it right? And this passage doesn't just raise these questions, it, it answers them for us as well. So I'll start with this. I'll start with a short answer to each of these questions and then kind of expand on each of them. First, what the disciples got wrong was the definition of a disciple. They misdefined what it means to be a disciple. Second, um, how we can get it right is by becoming a child. Becoming a child. And third, the way we can know that we actually got it is by living as a child. Okay, so th those are the three points. Defining a disciple, becoming a child, and living as a child. So let's look at these one at a time. One, defining a disciple. Take a look at verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, 
for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now the word such in the Greek literally means like that, or as in comparison with, meaning children here are being used as sort of like a metaphor, a metaphor for a true disciple who holds claim to the kingdom of God, to such belongs the kingdom of God. So in a way, the answer to the question, what, what is a disciple? In a way, there's a simple way to answer that. According to Jesus, it's like being a child. What does that mean? Well, the, the natural kind of inclination here is for us to think what Jesus means here is we need to be as innocent and pure as, as a little children, right? But that's not consistent. If you've been following in our series, that's not consistent with what Jesus has been teaching us about human nature, remember? Um, nowhere does Jesus, or nowhere does the Bible, as a matter of fact, say that children are innocent, that children are pure. And they only develop this thing called sin, you know, this selfishness, entitlement, and greediness, and, and lies, and deceit, only later in life. Somehow the world deposited that into their hearts, and they picked that up later in life. The Bible doesn't teach that. It, it teaches that children's sins are like our sins. It's not outside in, it's inside out. It's all in our hearts. But here's the difference. We have different amount of fruit to show for it, right? If you're grown up, we've lived longer, and we have a lot more fruit, good or bad, to show for what's in our hearts. Um, children, little children, especially babies, don't. That, that would be the only difference. But at the bottom, at the root, we're all the same. We're the same at the root. What's at the root is sin. It's all coming from the human heart. So being innocent, pure like children can't be the meaning of this metaphor. What is the meaning of this metaphor? I think we can infer a few things, you know, just logically, that children are, but grown-ups aren't, right? Things that children are, grown-ups aren't. And that would make sense, what Jesus would highlight children here, right? Then we can think of a few things. First, children are, are dependent. Children are dependent. And here's the thing, they're okay with that. They're okay with the fact that they're, they're, that they're dependent. Uh, grown-ups are not good at being dependent. And even worse at admitting that they are dependent. Uh, we don't want to be, we don't want to appear needy. We don't appear needy, right? So, uh, someone offers you to buy you a drink, right? Buy you, buy you your meal, pay for your meal. Like, no, it's fine, it's fine, I got, I got this. I'm, ca I'm capable of paying for myself, right? We're, we're, we're allergic in a way uh, to being dependent, to being needy. Children are not like that. Children are very good at admitting, admitting that they're dependent on especially their parents. And second, along with those lines, children are very honest about their needs. They're very honest about their needs. They're not good at hiding their needs. They're very good at expressing them. You know, my kids, for example, they're so good at expressing their needs to the point where they would bust down my door at 3 a.m. in the morning, like SWAT, just boom, just kick the door open, and we'll wake up, you know, then and I will wake up shocked, like, what's going on, who's broken into our house? All, only to hear, you know, our three-year-old say, not four-year-old, say, Abba, I'm thirsty, you know, give me a glass of water. Um, and I'd be like, okay, give me a minute to collect myself, because, you know, my body's not fully awake, I'm just like shocked by this whole thing, and then I'll go and get them their water, and then they'll drink the water, and they'll go straight back to sleep. 
Sometimes they'll even demand, they'll summon me to that room. They're, they'll yell from their room, Abba, come here. Right. And that's, and I'll be like, okay, I guess I have to go. My, my child is summoning me, right? So what do you do as a parent? You go, you, you become summoned, right? I'm not offended by, no parent is, is offended by that. Why? Because that's just the nature of our relationship. They're needy, and I provide what they need. Right? Well, what if, what if you were to do that? What if, what if you were sleeping over at my place, 3 a.m. in the morning, you kicked out my door, and, Pastor John, get me a glass of water. Where's your water? Give me a glass of water. Um, right? You will never be invited back ever again. Right? I'll have to go through some some gracious prayer, and you know, God will have to go to work in my heart to let you come over again. Why? Because that's, that's just not the nature of our relationship. You can't kick down my door, boom, and be like, PJ, here's what I need. Right? You just, and you'll never do that. You just take care of that yourself. Right? You, you won't be, even if you had a legitimate need, right, you'll try to figure that out yourself. Children are very good at expressing the tiniest of needs. The smallest of things, and 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 then here's a here's a final thing. They're so good at receiving. They're so good at receiving uh, when they're provided for. They're a little too good at it sometimes. It's like yeah, I kind of have to remind my kids now and then. You know, hey, did you forget to say something? Right here, here it is. Did you forget to say something? And, and that's when we're like, oh, thank you. Right, um, <laughs> you're welcome. Right, that's the nature of our dialogue a lot of times. That's how kids are. And here's the thing, the younger they are, the younger they get, or the younger they get, the younger they are, you don't get any younger, sorry, old people. Uh, that's not, the Bible doesn't teach that, right? Scratch that. The younger they are, the more obvious this gets. Like if my, if I, if my seven-month-old baby starts crying in the middle of service, right? That's normal, right? Every, you will all assume there's just a legitimate need there and you treat it like background noise, right? Um, whereas if you start getting a little older, then you start being a little bit more distracted by it, all the way to like a grown-up. If, like for example, if you know, actually Kevin starts crying in the middle of the service, like out loud, right? Um, something's wrong, right? He's either in pain, or you know, like Sarah's gone, or something like something's happened, right? He is in despair, right? We will infer something from that. Not, not with babies. They can cry as loud as they want, and it's like, okay, they have a need, and that's it. That's normal. Now, interestingly, both very old commentaries, like, like by Calvin, and, and more modern commentaries, like you know, William Lane, those guys, they make the same note that the little children here in this passage were most likely infants and babies. Less than a year old, probably. Because, right, here's one thing, they had to be brought. Right? They weren't running to Jesus. They were carried to Jesus. And then Jesus had to take them and carry them into his arms. Kind of like, you know, when we baptize our babies. Right? The parents would bring the baby up in their arms. Or whatever, I would carry them in my arm and then I will baptize them. Right? They had to be brought by their parents. And that's what you notice about babies. Right? Babies all around our, our church. Right? During fellowship, you can, you can observe them. They can't go anywhere unless they're carried. Right? Um... That's the scene. The children here are meant to represent the neediest, the, the most expressive, and the most receptive of humankind. Okay? Infants. 
And the disciples, there it is, right? And the disciples are telling them, right? You can't bring them here, right? You can't bring these babies to Jesus. And, and, and if you translate that, if you figure into that everything we just looked at, they're basically saying, you can't come to Jesus like you're dependent, like you're needy, and like you're ready to receive. And that makes Jesus furious. That kind of misrepresentation of who can come to Jesus makes him so mad. He's indignant. Because it turns out the kingdom of God actually belongs to them, the dependent, the needy, and those who are ready to receive. It belongs to them. The disciples apparently thought of discipleship as if it's a status they had earned, right? God from heaven looked at their resume and said, I gotta send my son and, and select them and bring them into my kingdom because, you know, what a great addition they would make. Right? How prideful to think that this call to discipleship is earned it can't be earned. It doesn't depend on your spiritual resume. Not, not if these infants get in. If they can come to Jesus, anyone can. Right? With nothing in their hands, with no resume, with no merits. Simply being dependent, needy, and receiving. And that's what the disciples took issue with. They wanted discipleship. They wanted this Christian identity to be about how special they are. Not how gracious Jesus is. Not how freely he gives, but how good at we are at earning what he has to offer. Right? So they kind of define discipleship, I like to say, as a sort of a three Michelin star restaurant. Like only a certain class of people can get in. You have to dress a certain way. You have to look a certain way. You have to be able to afford a certain amount of money. When it's really a Waffle House. <laughs> it's really, like anyone can go anytime, you know, with a little bit of money, right? You got $5, good, go have a feast, right? That's a Waffle House. There's actually a, a, this really incredible quote from An Anthony Bourdain, the late food critic, about Waffle House. Um, he actually went for the very first time when his TV show was airing and one of his visits to South Carolina and, and there's this famous chef who actually runs a Michelin star restaurant who, upon hearing that Anthony Bourdain never been to a Waffle House, said, we, we have to go to Waffle House. Takes him to Waffle House and just, just orders everything pretty much on the menu, gives him, gives him the whole you know, spiel of what a Waffle House is about and then just a bunch of regular people sitting around him a regular Waffle House scene. And here's what Bourdain said in his narration in that scene. Quote, It is indeed marvelous where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts for everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, or degree of inaberration, is welcomed. Its warm yellow glow, a beacon of hope and salvation, inviting the hungry, the lost, the seriously hammered, all across the South to come inside a place of safety and nourishment. It never closes. It is always, always faithful, always there for you. And I think we really see a glimpse of this relationship between a disciple of Christ and Christ himself in this quote. I really do. On the one hand, you have people who are hungry for hope and salvation, but don't have much to offer. Right? That's a disciple. 
On the other hand, you have a place of safety and nourishment for such people, and it's always open, always faithful, always there for you, and that's Jesus. That's how we can define a relationship between the disciple and the discipler. Okay, the disciple is someone dependent, ready to receive, got nothing to offer. The discipler is someone who's open, capable, has a lot to provide, and willing to provide freely, graciously. And that's Jesus. Okay. How would you define a disciple? Someone who is needy, someone who is empty-handed, someone who is weak, someone who says, I can't. I can't. That's a disciple. To such, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Now, after this correction, right, comes the next question, how do I become a child then? How do I become a child who is dependent and ready to receive? That's the second point, becoming a child. First, you gotta identify what is hindering you, right? What was hindering these children and their parents? The disciples' misunderstanding, right, misdefinition of disciple, and this sort of spiritual elitism, right, spiritual sort of Pharisaic sort of aristocracy, if you will. What's hindering you from becoming childlike? What hinders you from being dependent and receiving from God? Okay? I think the Bible gives us two basic answers to that. I think this is general enough so that it applies to all of us. And they're true in this story and true in our modern story as well. Again, this is where you have to identify where you are in the story. The two hindrances the Bible identifies for us are the internal hindrance and the external hindrance. The internal hindrance is, is our hearts, our, our pridefulness, our prideful hearts. We're too proud to receive. We're too proud to express our neediness. We're too proud to say, God, I need you. Whatever it is. There's, that's the internal struggle. And there's the external struggle, and that's our world. Our world encourages being strong and independent. The, the, the can-do attitude, right? We're a merry can't, right? We have, you have to have this positive attitude about your capacity, your ability, and your potential all the time. It discourages being dependent, being weak. And our self-esteem, the world tells us, hangs entirely on our performance and our achievements. And so, right, it's, we're stuck in a cycle now. The prideful heart fueling this competitive, boastful world, and this competitive, boastful, wor boastful world fueling the prideful heart. That's our predicament. It's a very prideful cycle, if you will. Here's a quote from Henry Nouwen that I think explains this really brilliantly. So it's a lengthy excerpt, but it's really worth giving it to you in its whole thing. So let me, let me read this quote for you. Quote, in our success-oriented world, our lives become more and more dominated by superlatives. We brag about the highest tower, the fastest runner, the tallest man, longest bridge, and the best student. But underneath all our emphasis on successful action, many of us suffer from a deep-seated, low self-esteem and are walking around with the constant fear that someday someone will unmask the illusion and show that we are not as smart, not as good, or as lovable as the world was made to believe. This nagging self-doubt is at the basis of so much depression in the lives of many people who are struggling in our competitive society. When we have sold our identity to the judges of this world, we're bound to become restless because of a growing need for affirmation and praise. Indeed, we're tempted to become low-hearted because of constant self-rejection. 
And I think that's brilliant. I mean, it's, it's brilliantly sad, but it's brilliant, not only because it connects our internal and external struggles so well, but it also reveals something that many people never realize, and that's what's on the flip side. What's on the flip side of this coin? On the other side of my pride, on the other side of you know, living for this competitiveness, what is, what's on the other side of that? It's me basing my self-esteem on my achievements and my performance. Along with that, this deep-seated self-doubt, this restlessness, because I'm bound. I'm bound to people's approval all the time. And the progress report comes in every day. And I have to check that progress report every day. And I'm always anxious of what the report will say. I'm enslaved. We're enslaved by the world's perception of us. That's the flip side of living pridefully, living self-reliantly, living self-sufficiently. And the world says this too, you know, when, if you are down, if, when you're feeling low, like you're on this flip side of this coin, just pick yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Think positive thoughts. Think positively until you're able to bring yourself up again. You gotta believe in yourself. You have what it takes. But what Henry Nowen is saying is, the bring yourself up again, the, you, can, you can do it, you have what it takes kind of message only makes things worse. Why? Because every time you hear it, be better, get better, get this under control, you're hearing, right, at the same time, don't you fail. Don't you become a disappointment to others. Don't you know people are watching? Okay. The, with the flattery comes the pressure, right? And that ultimately leads you to internalize a self-doubt and self-rejection in the end. Do you understand this diagnosis? Do you agree with this diagnosis? If you can at least understand this diagnosis, I would say you're understanding what Christianity is, is trying to answer, the, the question that it's trying to answer. If you agree with the diagnosis, then I would say you're either a Christian or you're very close to becoming a Christian. Either one of those. Because becoming a disciple, right, or becoming a child, begins with this confession. It's saying, yes, God, I agree with your diagnosis of the problem in my heart and the problem in my world. I want to justify myself through the world. That's my problem. And I constantly, as a result of that, feel unjustified. That's the problem I have and the problem our world has. It can be as simple as that, saying, I agree with that, Lord. I agree with that, God. Your diagnosis is right. I see that I am full of pride and I am stuck in a prideful, boastful world, and my pride and my fears are only growing worse and worse. If you can make that confession, what you're doing is what you're, you're, you're slowly turning away from it. You're slowly, by calling it out, you're turning, turning away from yourself and your world. Because you're seeing through it. You're seeing through it. Right? You're not blinded by it, you're seeing through it. You're not naive to the world, you're seeing through it, you're being realistic about it. And, and, and that makes you turn toward something else, and that is God and His kingdom. Not yourself and your world, but toward God and His kingdom. And when you, when you willfully do that, when you willfully turn away from your old self and your old world towards God and His kingdom, desiring Him and His kingdom, that the Bible calls, that's repentance. That's repentance. Some of you have never done that before, never felt that before, never knew what that means. Some of you have, and some of you need to recover that. But repentance is for the Christian and the non-Christian alike. Bottom line is just turning away from your old self and the old world, desiring more of God and His kingdom. 
When Jesus says this in verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What he's also saying is, you have to become dependent, you have to become needy to the point of repenting of your independence and repenting of your pridefulness. And then receive, like a child, this, this salvation, this justification that you did not, cannot earn. Something the world cannot give you, then, then you'll be able to receive the kingdom of God. That's what we need. God and his kingdom. Turning away from the old self and the old world. What we need is not our best life now. See, that, that right there is childishness. Um, as opposed to childlikeness. That's childish because it's ignoring so much of what is part of our reality right now. The real brokenness and the, the, the messed upness of this world. Right? Our best life now, here, really. Have you looked around the world? Have you turned on the news lately? Right? You've got to be incredibly naive to think that you can live your best life now. Right? Grow out of that naivete, that, that kind of childishness. Okay, what's childlikeness? What's the difference? Well, childlikeness is not naive. Right? Childishness is naive, so it never grows. But childlikeness says, I need to, I need to acquire the, a better sense of my reality through, through my parents who see things better. And let them educate me. I need to buy into their reality. And that means I need to grow. There's always room for growth when you're childlike. Never room for growth if you're childish. It's, it makes, it's, the, it's this really the song that we sing. We love to sing. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. And do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. It's both. It's realism without pessimism. It's realistic about the reality of this world, but we're not pessimistic. Why? Because we're, we're protected. We're children. We have a guardian. Right? We're provided for. The call is to be childlike, not to be childish. Right? And then if you're childlike and you're depending on your, your spiritual heavenly father, you can handle the ugliness of this world. You keep going and you keep growing. Right? You're not stagnant. You're not cynical. You're not complacent. You're not indifferent. You're not numb to the pain of this world. You're realistic about it, but you're not pessimistic about it. And you begin to change and mature in the way that you interact with the world. Of course, things are not perfect, right? But things can be different, right? And that's the hopefulness of a child. Things can't be perfect on this side of heaven, but things can be different. And you live for that difference. You be salt and light. Why? Your heavenly Father is with you. He promises to never leave you nor forsake you. That's childlikeness. But to say, it's all going to hell anyway, it's going to end in meaninglessness, that's childish, that's naive because you're still living as if your life matters, right? Which is absurd. Grow out of that naivete. And C.S. Lewis put it this way, you know, be, be childlike enough to grow out of your childishness, okay? Um, be, be matured enough, you know, be a grown-up enough to grow out of that kind of childish naivete. So bottom line, how do we become a child? We repent, we, we turn away from the old self and the old, old world toward God, desiring Him and His kingdom. Now, 
how do I know I'm in this? How do I know I'm living this? Okay. Um, well, I kind of answered it. You know when you're living it. How do you know if you're living it? If you're living as a child, okay? Not simply saying, I, I believe that I'm a child. I know that I'm a child. But at some point along the line, in your story, you've got to identify how you're living as a child, as a child of God. How are you living as a child of God? Now, what does that mean? Let's start here with verse 16. Take a look at verse 16 again. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Okay? Here's the first thing. Jesus carried the children in his arms and blessed them and pretty much gave them a personal benediction. Right? Lays his hands on them. Just, he blesses them. So we have to remember this. This, in this relationship you have with him, um, you have to understand it's something. this relationship is something that is freely offered to you and it's not something that you have to earn. Okay? Trying to live as a child of God will not make you become a child of God. You live as a child of God because you've, you've been made. You've been made a child of God. So admitting that, right, you can't carry yourself to God and, and that he must carry you in his arms and bless you as if you are a spiritual newborn. Right, giving, giving this salvation to you, promising this to you even before you were aware of it and pursuing you along the way. That's that belief, that understanding, right? That's the beginning journey of your child. I always wonder, you know, when, when will my kids begin to remember things? You know, when, when did their memory begin to you know, start functioning? Because, you know, we would say, we used to live in Florida and we used to say, let's... Let's go to this and that. Well, actually, let's not go to this more because they won't remember a thing. <laughs> well, it's not worth it. So when will they remember? Let's go then. And that's fascinating. You think about it. There's a good chunk of their lives where uh, they were totally dependent. They were totally needy, receiving just everything that they were totally unaware of. They have no idea how this relationship began. No clue, right? But in a strange way, that's why it makes it in a way more genuine, more authentic, and more intimate. They were that reliant on, on their parents and, and their parents held on to them. Our spiritual relationship to God is not too different, right? Sometimes we don't even know, like, when did I really start believing? When did the when did belief kick in? Was it when I was a teenager? Was it when I was in college? Was it just yesterday? We don't quite know. It's like it's kind of like the wind, like like Jesus said, and that's okay. That's that's how it is for a lot of people, right? But what you need to understand is it happened without your control. Um, apart from your choosing God, God had already chosen you. That that's how a parent-child relationship works. Right? So so that's the first thing that we have to understand and and, and process in our minds. And the second thing is is if you're a child of God. You gotta be hungry for him. Your dependence on God, your, your hunger for God should not dissipate, it should intensify over time. So we have to check our hunger level. Right? Um, are you turning to him? How often are you turning to him? Are you, are you praying to him? Are you seeking him? Because the promise is if you seek him, you'll find him. But you won't seek him, see, unless you realize you're dependent on him. Are you hungry for him? Or are you, let me put it this way, are you living as if you're hungry for him? Are you, 
Are you submitting yourself to, to the act of some, uh, uh, um, surrendering control and being completely dependent on, on this Heavenly Father? Do, do you live this way? Uh, remember the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, right? Why? Why are they blessed? Because God will be the helper, God will be the comforter, God will be their strength, right? In all their weakness, God will be their strength. That's why they're blessed. Because that's happiness, that's blessedness, being satisfied in God. So to taste that, you've got to intensify your hunger for God. You've got to whet your appetite. How do you do that? Well, God has given us a few ordinary things through your worship, your constant worship, submitting your mind and your thoughts and meditation to, to the Word of God, and through the prayers, through the prayers. Because these things tend to right, detach you from your old appetites and help you acquire the new. In the beginning, it may feel like you're just kind of munching on, or you're going on this new diet where you're just sticking to um, fresh vegetables and you know white meat. Okay, it can feel that way, but over time, as your taste buds, spiritual taste buds mature, that becomes tasty. That, that satisfies you. You got to live as if you're hungry for God. And the final thing is this: I mentioned prayer, so let me say this about prayer. You got to pray to God like you're a child of God. You've got to pray to God like you're a child of God. Um, so for one, you have to pray uh, because that's the nature of the relationship. You, 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 you speak to your Father. You, you ask Him things. You, you petition. But two, you have to go to Him as if you are going to someone who's not out to judge you and punish you, someone who's out to evaluate you, someone who's going to hold you against something that you did in the past but as if you're going to your daddy, your heavenly father. What are the first two words of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, our Father. It's not our King, our Lord, our Master, or even our friend. He is all those things. But the primary way in which he teaches us to address him and understand God as is our Father, our Father. You know what that means? That means you and I can bust down God's doors at 3 a.m. in the morning and ask Him for the, the smallest of things and the, and the greatest of things, and He will not be offended because that's the nature of our relationship. You can, you can even summon Him. You can demand that He come to your room. God, help me right now. God, speak to me through your word. Answer me as I pray to you in my secret place. And he will respond, because again, that's the nature of the relationship. If you seek him, you'll find it. You can go to him for all things, great and small. So keep in mind these couple of things. Uh, living as a child of God, first is understanding you didn't become a child by trying to become a child. You became a child by the grace of God. And secondly, do the things that will whet your appetite and intensify your hunger for God. Right? At some point, you've got to get, get off the junk food to start eating real food. So turn your attention to Him. Intensify your hunger for Him. And lastly, when you pray, pray as if you are a child. Pray boldly. Pray confidently because you're praying in Jesus' name. Through Him, we have the same rights, the same access to our Heavenly Father. And that's a great gift. And we have to access that. And when we access that, what you realize is, I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your gift of adoption, uh, making us your children through not our own efforts, not our own deeds, but through the, the life, death, and resurrection of your son, your child, Jesus Christ, who, who lived the perfect life we couldn't live, who died the death that we should have died, to resurrect again, to give us the life that we do not deserve. We thank you for your son, and may we, Lord, follow him, be childlike as he is childlike, trusting in you, uh, depending on you, um, expressing his needs to you, and receiving from you. Help us to resemble him in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name.